welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to James chapter 5. We have reached the end of the book of James. This letter, written to believers who had been scattered throughout the known world, has had many different themes. Joy in trials, be doers of the word, show no partiality, fulfill the royal law. Faith without works is dead, tame the tongue. Wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. Do not live for this world. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and the day of the Lord is at hand. All of these themes have something in common. They call the believer to live out your faith in a time and place where the things of this world are at war with the church and seeking to infiltrate it. Today we will look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, where James will give his final call to live out your faith. James highlights three ways in which the Christian must live out their faith. First, through their integrity. Second, through their prayers. Third, through their efforts towards restoration. Let's begin in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. It is not entirely clear how this sentence fits into the rest of the chapter. It is possible that James uses the phrase, but above all, to emphasize this truth as particularly important to remember when suffering. It is also possible that, but above all, is James' way of introducing his concluding remarks in verses 12 through 20. Either way, James wants to draw our attention to what follows. He says, My brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. This is not addressing cursing, the use of expletive, vulgar language, or even the use of God's name as an exclamation mark. There are other passages of Scripture that forbid those destructive practices. Instead, in this verse, James is talking about the taking of oaths. It was common in New Testament times for individuals to swear on something greater or holier than themselves to gain someone's trust. We see in Matthew 23 how it was common practice for the Jews to swear or make an oath on the temple, the gold of the temple, the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, or even by heaven itself. Throughout human history, there is a clear understanding that people lie. Just because someone says they'll do something doesn't mean they intend to. Deceit is humanity's constant companion. So what do you do when trying to gain someone's trust in a dishonest society? Well, you make an oath by something greater than yourself, something or someone that will come to haunt you if you disrespect or dishonor their name. For the Jews, this primarily focused on God and his dwelling place among men, the temple. But today there are other sacred or precious things that I've heard people swear by. For example, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my child's life. I promise May lightning strike me if I don't keep my word. 
or in Afrikaans, ik beloof jou. I remember as a child, the popular one was cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. To break an, such an oath is supposed to be sacrilegious, with the possibility of experiencing misfortune if you failed to fulfill your oath. But in Matthew 23, we get the sense that even in the Jews' oaths, there was deceptiveness hiding. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees in verse 16 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. As you read the rest of that chapter, not only is it clear that the religious leaders are twisting God's standards of righteousness for their own purposes, but also that people were actively looking for ways to make a lesser oath, which would not have consequences when they refused to keep it. Deceitfulness and trickery were rampant in the first century, as they are today, and the swearing by an oath wasn't making things any better. Still to this day, you are taking a major risk if you enter into any financial agreement simply on someone's word, even if they swear to deal honestly with you. So what is the solution for the Christian? James says in verse 12, Do not swear. Do not declare an oath in the first place. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. James is saying to the first century church, and he is saying to us, reject this culture of having to prop up your words with rash oaths. Throw it out. Get rid of this carnal practice. Instead, as he says in verse 12, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is very simple and straightforward language. If the Christian says yes to something, then he means yes and he will keep his word. If the Christian says no to something, then he means no, and he will keep his word. This is one of the most revealing character traits of the genuine believer. They speak the truth. They are not a liar. The person who is constantly declaring his trustworthiness with an oath is most likely a person who senses his own untrustworthiness who realizes that people have good reason not to trust him. But James is calling believers to a better way. He is calling Christians to be people of integrity. Integrity is defined as the quality of being honest, truthful, whole, and undivided. Integrity is most powerfully revealed when a person stands by their words, even to their own hurt. The primary emphasis of James 5.12 is that the true Christian lives out their faith through their integrity. As discussed throughout every chapter in the book of James, our speech matters. What comes out of our mouths reveals the contents 
of our hearts. God cares about everything we say. Taking an oath does not somehow elevate our words to a new level where God all of a sudden hears and now begins to care. No, we are to be people of the truth. This verse in James echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Beginning in verse 33, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his, foot, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James chapter 5 verse 12 finishes with a similar warning. James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This word condemnation is the word crisis or crisis and is often translated judgment or the judgment. As you study each occurrence of this word in the New Testament, it's, it is not used to describe discipline or chastening of God's children during this life. Instead, this word describes the final judgment of God against all who practice wickedness. The judgment that will fall on all who are opposed to God. Throughout the letter of James, he has addressed the church directly, while at the same time recognizing that there were some who did not belong, those whose professions of faith were not genuine, who would one day fall away. This is another such warning. He warns that if you are a person who is untrustworthy, if you are a person who has to go about bolstering your words with oaths, if you, by your way of life, are in fact a liar, then the truth is not in you, and you are on the path to condemnation. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Notice carefully, this passage describes the Christian as someone who has come to know Christ. They were saved, then they follow him. But if someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, a child of God, but does not follow Jesus then he was not a child of God in the first place. James is making the same connection in chapter 5, verse 12, warning the church that there is no such thing 
as a follower of Christ who doesn't follow. No such thing as a Christian without any Christ-likeness. No such thing as being in the truth, but being a known liar as well. Before moving on to the next passage, I do want to clarify a few things about making oaths. It is possible that Jesus and James are both forbidding any oaths at all, ever, during the church age. A first reading of of this passage does seem to say just that, never, ever take an oath. But with a historical context in mind, and after studying the several oaths that are encouraged in the Old Testament, and reading the many oaths that are taken by Paul in the New Testament, I believe there is room for promises, covenants, and contracts to be made when necessary. I do not believe this passage forbids signing a mortgage, testifying in court, serving in government, and getting married, all of which requires some sort of promise, covenant, contract, or even an oath. The primary emphasis of this passage is to be people of integrity, people who do not need to take an oath to be trusted, people who, in fact, refuse to take oaths in our day-to-day interactions because we do not require the superstitious fear of lightning striking us, dead people haunting us, or calamity befalling us if we break a sacred oath. Instead, we are to be people who know that every word we speak is said before God the Almighty and that He requires of us that we speak the truth. In verses 13 through 18, James continues his final words of instruction by calling Christians to live out their faith through their prayers. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In verse 13, James speaks generally about suffering or pain. He says, if you find yourself experiencing either one of these, let your first response be to pray. James points the one who is suffering to pray for himself, to pray for his own strength, endurance, patience, and release from the suffering. It is appropriate to pray for these things for yourself. 
He then generally speaks of the opposite condition. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If life is going well, let your first response be praise to God. This one is a little more difficult and will require practice and discipline because it is easiest to forget God when this life is going the way we want it to. Here James has generally described the range of conditions that a person might find themselves in at any point in their life. But no matter our condition, our response should be the same. Hearts and eyes that are turned to heaven, seeking God and acknowledging Him. In verse 14, James becomes slightly more specific. He says, If anyone among you is sick, call for the elders of the church. What are these people called elders? Well, I'm not going to completely answer that question today. Lord willing, over the next year, we will study the concept of church leadership through a preaching series in Paul's letters to Timothy. If you would like to read ahead and start studying this topic of church leadership, then I highly encourage you to read First and Second Timothy and the letter to Titus. But simply put, elders are the men appointed to lead a local congregation. Another word for elders is pastors. There is no difference biblically. This is an exciting topic because it is my hope that in the very near future, God will raise up more men from within our congregation to lead his church. But I'm going to stop there before I get too excited and continue on with James chapter 5. He says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So who falls into the category of being sick? Surely he he doesn't mean anyone who gets the sniffles. There's good reason to believe that James is thinking of a believer who is bedridden. The sick person, the sick believer calls for the elders, elders of the church to come to him. Most likely implying that he is not able to be at the weekly gathering. The elders come and pray over the sick believer as if they were standing around his bed or a pallet on the floor. Then in verse 15 it says, And the Lord will raise him up, picturing the sick person return to enough strength to stand up out of the bed. There will be many other times when the elders of the church will gather to pray over a believer under their spiritual care. But this passage at the very least establishes the responsibility to pray, when called, over those who are bedridden due to illness. So we have this situation where a believer is very ill and he calls for the elders of the church to pray over him. Then James says something interesting. Verse 14, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Depending on your background, the concept of anointing a sick person with oil may bring to mind many different ideas. But the biblical concept of anointing with oil is much clearer once you separate what Scripture says from all the extra things that man has added to it. 
In the Old Testament, priests, kings, and some prophets were anointed with oil as a symbol of their consecration or being set apart unto the Lord. This was part of the historic fabric of the Israelites' culture. In the, in the Jews, James is writing to would have understood anointing someone with oil as a symbol of God's special attention on that individual. Anointing with oil was a physical act that symbolized the spiritual reality. There was nothing supernatural in the oil itself. For the Christian who is lying on their sickbed, to be anointed with oil symbolizes and reminds them that they are consecrated to God. They are set apart as his child. He does hear their prayers and he is able to heal them from their suffering. Since many healings happened in the New Testament without the use of oil, it should not be seen as a required practice. Instead, elders may anoint the sick with oil and are encouraged to do so by James if there is a clear understanding of its purpose and significance. Though the anointing with oil is what gets a lot of attention in this passage, it is not actually James's focus. Prayer and the Lord's power to heal are the emphasis. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James emphasizes doing all these things in the name of the Lord because he alone has creative power and he alone can raise someone from illness. In verse 15, James introduces this idea of the prayer of faith. He says without any other qualifications that this prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Some have, in, have interpreted this passage to mean that if the one praying has enough faith, or the one being prayed over has enough faith that God really wants this person to be healed, then God will always heal. But God doesn't always heal. Even when my pleas are strongest and my heart is closest to him, he still does not always heal. But before we lose hope, let's consider what James means by the prayer of faith. As you read through the pages of Scripture, faith is portrayed everywhere. From the patriarchs who believed God through to the Gospels where the disciples lacked faith. And finally in Revelation where Jesus praises those who did not deny the faith even though persecuted. In Hebrews 11, there is an entire chapter dedicated to those who live by faith in the Creator God. They believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those that dil diligently seek Him. With this in mind, I'd like to suggest four truths that describe the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith hopes in and places its confidence in God First, that he is who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures.
from Hebrews 11.6. Second, all things are possible with God. Matthew 19.26. Third, he will complete what he has promised. Matthew 5.18. And fourth, his way is perfect. Psalm 18, verse 30, and Romans 8, 28. I would suggest that these four beliefs are the bare minimum of the prayer of faith. This prayer is supremely focused on God, His power, His faithfulness, and the perfection of His plan. It was because of this confidence in God the Father that Jesus prayed this way as he anticipated drinking the cup of the wrath of God on the cross. In Mark 14, 36, we read, And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Jesus asked the Father, if at all possible, to spare him the suffering. But notice what Jesus says at the end. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was supremely focused on seeing the will of the Father fulfilled. The father ultimately said, No, I will not spare you this time of suffering. Yes, I will do my will. Because the crucifixion was his perfect plan. If the God-man Jesus perfectly, without sin and with complete faith, prayed for deliverance from suffering, And was denied, then we should not lose hope if we hear, No, I will not spare you this time of suffering. Yes, I will do my will. But when we pray in faith, and it is the will of God to heal someone, then the Lord will honor our prayers and raise that person from their illness. And ultimately, for the Christian, every time of suffering will end. Every illness will be healed. And every single one of us will be raised up. And the sufferings we experienced in this life will be nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. The end of verse 15 draws our attention to a possible cause of illness within the church. James says, And if he, the sick person, has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice that James says, If he has committed sins. He clearly wants to clarify that sin is only one possible reason for illness. That being said, Let's receive the warning. If any one of us continue in unrepentant sin, God says he will discipline us in love. 
Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God will not let the Christian continue down the path of sin indefinitely. He will discipline his children out of love for them. And one form of discipline is illness, as James implies in verses 15 through 16. The solution to this suffering is humility expressed through repentance and faith. Verse 16 instructs believers to live humbly with one another, confessing their sins and praying for one another so that they might be healed. The admonition here is to do this now, quickly, not waiting for God to discipline you for your pride and sinfulness, but instead to come quickly to one another, confessing our sins, admitting our wrongs, and praying faithfully for one another. Can you see the beauty of a Christian community that lives like this? When you sin, you quickly make it right, not letting wrongs fester and grow worse. Then the person who was wronged forgives you and prays for you that God would either heal you of your illness or protect you from any harm. Can you see what this could accomplish in your home? Men, are you quick to confess your sins to your wife, to your children? Do you humble yourself? Do you show them what repentance looks like? Do you lead them by your example? Or do you just let wrongs go unaddressed? going to sleep that night and waking up the next day as if nothing ever happened. Women, are you quick to forgive? When your husband, co-worker, or friend wrongs you, do you long for restoration? Are you ready and willing to forgive because you remember how much Christ has forgiven you? Or does it feel too good to hold on to your anger, resentment, or bitterness? James calls us to pray for one an- for the one who has sinned. It is very difficult for bitterness to grow in the heart of the Christian who is fervently praying for his repentant brother. I have experienced bitterness grow in my heart against a brother in Christ. I've been there. A wrong when unaddressed, I did not confront it, and the offender was probably completely unaware. That little seed of bitterness germinated in my heart, poking out its ugly head. With the right amount of nurturing, I grew it into a sapling that then grew into a decent-sized tree. I would have grown my bitterness into a legendary oak if the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, had not gripped me, shown me that I was grieving my Lord and destroying myself. But the problem 
is that bitterness has roots. It will not die without a fight. I tried different things, but bitterness had its grip on me. Finally, God released me from the prison of my bitterness through prayer. Not primarily prayer for myself, but instead prayer for the person who offended me. And I wasn't praying, God, you need to get a hold of that person. They are so messed up. Help them be less messed up. On the contrary, bitterness was put to death when I purposely prayed for the welfare, blessing, and success of that brother in Christ. I asked God to bless their family, their work, to give them health and to draw him closer to the Lord. Confession and prayer healed me, healed our relationship, and spared me further discipline. Verse 16 finishes with an interesting statement of encouragement. James says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is meant to encourage us that God hears the prayers of his children who are living in right relationship with him. And not only that, God delights to answer those prayers, giving honor to the petitions of the one who is supremely concerned with fulfilling the will of the Lord. Verse 17 through 18 gives us an Old Testament example of how God honored the prayer of Elijah, a person just like you and me. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a man supremely concerned with the will and glory of God. When the northern kingdom of Israel rejected their God and worshipped the Baals, Elijah prayed that God would keep his covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, God describes the discipline that would befall Israel if they rejected their God. And we read of one of the curses of God In verse 24, this is part of his covenant with Israel. He says, if they forsake him, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Elijah prayed that God would fulfill his promise, that he would stop the rain, that the ground would turn to dust so that Israel would repent and return to the Lord. Elijah was supremely concerned with the glory of God and with the fulfillment of his will. James tells us to pray likewise and to know that God hears and honors the prayer of the person who loves his way. In closing, James calls the children of God to seek restoration. 
He says in verses 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the end of James' letter to the church. And he chooses to call us to live out our faith through seeking restoration. He calls us to pursue any brother or sister who wanders from the truth, who wanders from the faith. But restoration isn't a fun task. People in sin are much more likely to turn and personally attack you than they are to thank you for speaking the truth. But James calls us to love God and to love people more than we love our own comfort. To look to the eternal rather than our temporary comfort. To live out our faith. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for the letter of James. Thank you that you gave him these words. Thank you for the truth that has been displayed in front of us through these words. And God, I pray that no one here today would leave with a hard heart that no one listening to the sermon to these words would turn and wander from the faith rejecting your pleas your words of warning that no one would reject these words that are life giving Lord, would you help us to love one another, to live out our faith towards one another and towards the lost world around us? Would you help us? We need you. We cannot do this on our own. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.